Hello and welcome to the Chorus in the Chaos podcast. My name is Jack and this is episode two of a little mini series I'm doing on a defense of infant baptism. This is again, this is episode part two of four. Uh, And this little mini series is serving as an intermission to our season two theme, Common Struggles of the Christian Life. Uh, Blake and Grayson are taking a short break and pretty soon all three of us will be back and we'll continue that series. Uh, in part one of this little mini series, I offered some explanation and just you know proposed maybe one solution or one reason why there are so many American evangelicals who don't understand the theology and practice of infant baptism. And in that, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. All four of these are meant to kind of build on one another. Uh, but as a reminder, if you did listen to it and just don't recall, uh, I argued that it could be, right? I think there are a lot of reasons, but it could be that it's part of the reason there's such a broad misunderstanding among modern evangelicals is that there's just this preconditioned hermeneutic to read the Bible with a maybe dispensational or dispensational paradigm. And many miss the cultura and scriptural substrata uh, for, covenant, or I would say, covenantal theology for paedobaptism. And again, I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. Um, this one is kind of continuing off off of that idea. So, um, you know, as we continue, uh, it's important for all of us that we remember the Bible was not written in a cultureless vacuum, right? Since since the man began uh, writing Holy Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there has been an ongoing, intricate, sovereign intertwining of cultures and faith. It's truly beautiful when you see that in scripture. And I'm reminded actually of Acts 17, uh, when here when Paul, when preaching to the men of Athens, uh, draws out culture and he says, and this is uh, Acts uh, 17, 25 through 27, and he made from one man, every nation of all mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. See, God is orchestrating a beautiful grafting of peoples into one for himself. And beginning with the promise of redemption all the way back in the Garden of Eden, uh, he continues that fulfillment within the church today. And as we seek to understand the grand narrative of redemption from creation, fall redemption, this grand narrative from start to finish, you know, what we what we see in Scripture are endless reasons to praise the Lord of the universe. Um, so in this kind of building off that, that theme, uh, I am going to provide some brief overviews in this episode of covenantal theology and dispensational theology. And I will, of course, be arguing for a covenantal reading of the Bible as I'm going along with this. Um, so, and, and it's, it's important to say, for anyone wanting to build a scriptural argument for infant baptism, as ultimately this is our um, our objective of this series, you know, a defense of a scriptural defense of infant baptism, we must begin there. We must begin to learn to understand the Bible covenantally, because covenant theology is the understructure that supports the scriptural argument for uh, infant baptism. But first, let's look at dispensational theology. So, while there are no shortage of Christian denominations and interpretations of the Bible. Uh, in general, there are two primary approaches to understanding Scripture. Uh, I would say a dispensational approach and a covenantal approach. And within each one, uh, you know, these are kind of main categories. There's numerous variations. Even within the covenantal side, um, you know, you have the covenantal Presbyterians. You have actually Reformed Baptists or covenantal Baptists who read the Bible covenantally like I would, but 
excuse me, but they draw out different things uh, in the way it, it practically plays out through the giving of the sign in the New Testament. So within each side, from the covenantal side to the dispensational side, there are variations, right? And I can't take time to address all those. Um, there's just no, not time for that. What I'm trying to do here is really just to, to someone who's not familiar with this, generally explain the two basic paradigms, right? Of the, what's sometimes called hermeneutics between dispensational and, um, and covenantal. Um, it's, it's worth, worth adding that both platforms, um, that on both sides, uh, to be a gospel believing church, right? You understand regardless of the framework, um, this doesn't change necessarily the effect in the cross of Christ. Uh, there are a lot of wonderful dispensational Baptistic brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, most notable, maybe John MacArthur. He considers himself kind of a leaky dispensational. But no one would say that John MacArthur doesn't understand the gospel. So this isn't a gospel issue. It's just really understanding how God carries out the promises in the Bible and it, as it relates to defining and understanding who God's people are. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit more, but that's, again, at a high level. Uh, if you grew up in an evangelical Protestant church west of the Mississippi River, um, you know, you, there's a decent chance you grew up reading the Bible with some dispensational glasses or bias. That is you, to say you understand there to be a fundamental and operational divide between the Old and New Testaments. Uh, the Old Testament, kind of the Old and New, they act as distinct dispensations, each with its own beginning and end, functioning largely independently of one another. And although these dispensations may point in reference to one another, <clears throat> being unified in God's word, they're siloed unto themselves, largely with distinct purposes. So you had the beginning and an end of a dispensation with a purpose and a beginning and an end of a dispensation with a specific purpose. Um, you might be uh, surprised to learn that dispensationalism, this idea of really reading the Bible this way, didn't really exist until it took form in the 1800s under a British theologian named James Darby. And Darby, uh, while studying uh, Isaiah chapter 32, saw implementations that led to one of the more unique elements of dispensationalism, namely that there is a clear-cut distinction between the people of God in the Old Testament, being Israel, and the people of God in the New Testament, being the church, meaning they're not the same. You know, the church is, is not an extension of Israel. And some have gone as far as to argue that these distinctions are so different, or so distinct, I should say, that each people group, being Israel and the new church, have different paths for salvation. Um, admittedly, now most don't adhere to this. That was kind of ruled out over time. Uh, and I would actually consider that heresy. There's only one salvation, and that's in the, the person of Jesus, right? So if you're saying there's salvation outside of Jesus for the nation of Israel, you're you're out of line. Um, but such such a position evidences the broad spectrum of differing theologies within that framework of dispensationalism. And uh, one <clears throat> really has to just kind of scan, casually scan the list of self-proclaimed dispensationalists to just see contrasting theologies. Again, there's a lot of variation here. I mentioned John MacArthur. Uh, there's other guys like John Hagee, Tim LaHaye, uh, Michael Vlach, Bruce Ware. These are all notable people that would be proclaimed dispensationalists that kind of have different viewpoints on some things. But the main point is dispensationalists argue for more discontinuity between the Old and New Testament than continuity. And in doing so, uh, they point out that some of the practice, such as circumcision in the Old Testament, ended within its own dispensation. You know, it served a purpose for the people of Israel, and its purpose has ended. Therefore, circumcision has no practical relevance for the church and Christians today. 
And reading the New Testament with such a mindset is where arguments for believers-only baptism really begins to arise, right? But nonetheless, this hermeneutic leaves dispensationalists with a challenge, I would say, of sorting the old and the new. They have to discern in the Old Testament as you're reading it, is this verse, does it relate to Israel and the church? And in what scope, right? Is it uh, ecclesiology? Is it eschatology? How do I interpret this? And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it can be challenging for some dispensational theologians. And this hermeneutic tends to lead one, uh, in some cases, to a very literal reading of the New Testament. And this is where I mentioned in the last episode, you kind of get this solo scriptura, if you remember that mentality. Uh, I would say that's a lot of where this comes out, because without the influence of the Old Testament and understanding uh, a clear scope of ecclesiology and eschatology, you you know, without that influencing one versus the other, because again, the two are distinct, the old and the newer are distinct. When you're reading the New Testament, because you don't have that broad influence, direct influence of the old, you tend to read the scriptures more literally, uh, as in, I would say, less holistically in the Bible, right? Uh, some dispensationalists may may have qualms with the way I phrase that, but again, I'm coming from a covenantal point of view. I'm not trying to slander or be unfair, but this is how I would say it. Uh, dispensationalists will point out, and I'll agree, that there are no explicit exa- examples of infants being baptized in the New Testament. Uh, and this is a stopping point for so many people, so, so many people. Uh, and for, for many, they give no further consideration of the issue. They say, well, if the Bible doesn't explicitly give the command to New Testament in the New Testament to baptize babies, it isn't to be done, right? But I'll contend, and this is kind of the point of this whole series, is that that way of thinking is more a product of hermeneutical framework than scriptural reality. Covenant theology, you'll see, will help us here, and we'll get to that. And, uh, and I will not claim to be, by the way, I should say it's not claim to be an expert on dispensational theological systems. Uh, I do believe it to be a short-sighted framework for reading and interpreting a Bible, hence me doing this, this whole series and me being a Presbyterian. Having said that, I do know many wonderful Christians who are deeply convinced by Scripture hold to this theological framework. Uh, Grayson, um, who does the podcast with me, I've blogged with him for nine years. He's one of my best friends. Although he distances himself from the terminology because it often carries a lot of baggage um, with it, just because a lot of confusion, which may be evidenced in my explanation here, the various uh, ways people explain and understand dispensationalism, um, he, he would consider himself uh, a dispensationalist. And so, you know, I think he, he's agreed to come on and, and do somewhat of a defense of believers only baptism. And I'm sure he'll touch on that and probably do a better job explaining the dispensational viewpoint than I did. Uh, but nevertheless, my aim here is not to provide a detailed, critical review of dispensationalism. Um, hopefully he can add some some breadth to that study and provide his own insight. What I'm trying to do is just compare and contrast for the sake of understanding covenantal theology. So as you can see, dispensationalism really divides the old and the new. That's kind of the main thing here. The two, are you're forced to interpret different verses uh, to really decide, is this verse referencing the uh, people of Israel, the church, is it a promise? Is it eschatology? What is it? You kind of have to think through it. But it's within covenantal theology that we really see what I would consider a rightful understanding of how to read the Bible. And when we look at the Bible holistically, um, we have to begin there, right? We have to look at covenantal theology, and it's, and it's through, that, through that covenantal mindset, that covenantal framework and hermeneutic that we have a rightful understanding of infant baptism. Um, So as I mentioned earlier, isolated on its own, the New Testament doesn't explicitly say somewhere, baptize all babies of believers, right? 
And again, for many people, that's the end of the debate. But instead, a covenantal theologian, uh, someone who reads the Bible and looks at it as a whole thing, not two parts, but whole one whole thing, that the New Testament doesn't stand on its own. It's an extension of the old. Indeed, the two parts are flowing together in a single redemptive thread. They're working together for fulfillment for the fulfillment of one divine promise. You see this echoed throughout Scripture in many places. This promise, I will be, be your God and you will be my people. Uh, we see that in Exodus 6, 7, Exodus 29, 45, Ezekiel 11, 20, uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, and even in Revelation 21, 3. And I'm sure there's other places that this, this theme is communicated. But this divine promise throughout the arcing, overarching all of Scripture, I will be your God and you will be my people. And this is the cited verse, um, again, runs throughout the whole scripture. It's a major theme of scripture. And I would say it climaxed with Jesus upon the cross. The eternal roots, though, of this divine promise find themselves not just within creation and the fall of mankind, but instead originating in eternity past. Before the world ever was, God predetermined that there would be a people for himself and a plan for redemption. And somehow in the majesty and infinite wisdom of the Godhead, the gospel was understood to be the means by which God would be most glorified. Uh, consider the words of Peter's Pentecost sermon. So this comes out of Acts uh, 2, verses 22 through 23. Uh, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter is saying to the very men that crucified our Lord, he's looking, imagine him looking at them, that this was, and it was such an evil act. He's looking at them. He says, men, you, you know yourselves, you delivered Jesus up according to, what does he say? The definite plan the definite eternal plan. And it's important to state that God didn't commit this act. You know, the, the, the cross of Christ was predestined. You could say it was a definite plan, part of the foreknowledge of God and the purpose of uh, of redemption. Yet some God didn't do it. Yet somehow within eternity past, the God had worked this mystery of redemption in the cross of Christ for his glory and his purpose, making a people his own. He used what men meant for evil to be good. And somehow he wove that in ways that we cannot be understand into his plan of redemption. And we find elsewhere in scripture that the scripture that these verses speak of the lamb being slain before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13:8, and that in Christ we as Christians were chosen before time to be holy and blameless. You can see that in Ephesians 1 verses 4 and kind of that whole little section there. Uh, in summary, the plan of redemption was not, as dispensations would say, a staggered development of, of dispensations kind of butted up one next to each other, right? One begins, one ends, one begins, one ends. Rather, it's a careful, I would argue, it's a careful orchestration of divine human covenants woven together for that singular purpose. I will be your God and you will be my people. Therefore, the fall of Adam, the salvation of Noah, the practice of circumcision, the founding of Israel, the kingship of David, and the cross of Christ are all working in concert together in grace towards that singular objective of redemption. And I say to, to this, I say consider the words of 2 Peter 2, 
uh, 9 and 10, when he expands on this shared identity between the church and Israel, uh, Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And here we find that the church, by the way of faith, has become the people of God. And that, I would, I would argue, and covenantal theology would say that we, we as those people, were an extension of the same people and nation God established with Abraham. The unfaithful that have been, uh, have been cast aside and, uh, and by the imputed righteousness of Jesus, others have been added. So the unfaithful of Israel have been cast aside, and through Jesus we've been grafted in. And Paul makes that clear in Romans 11. He says, uh, if some of the branches were broken off and you, being the Gentiles, although a wild offshoot, olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. And that's uh, Romans eleven seventeen. And that, fr- that imagery that he's drawing up, this builds on Romans 9. And when he says, Romans 9, 6, for all who descended from Israel um, do not belong to Israel. By saving faith in Jesus, uh, men of every tribe, people, tongue are united under God. And there are no distinct peoples with the distinct paths to salvation, but instead one bride of Christ predestined from eternity past. It is the same promises that Abraham received that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden. The same promises find their fulfillment in Christ, and we are all part of the people of God. And it's within that covenantal-minded hermeneutic, this, this meshing of all things in the, hist- in the history of the church, right? This covenantal-minded hermeneutic that we can begin to appreciate a place of baptism not necessarily as a new practice completely isolated within the New Testament, but as a sacrament, listen closely, built upon what was established in the Old Covenant and practiced by the people of God for thousands of years. So whereas circumcision was the covenant sign given to Israel, with the expansion of a better and new covenant, uh, we find baptism serving a similar function. It's the sign of the covenant. And because we have circumcision, we have so much to learn from the practice and use of circumcision. Um, We're not only dependent on the New Testament to understand the sign of the covenant being baptism. We must also, again, consider, again, the influence and role of circumcision. And I'll address this uh, in much more detail in the next, next episode on how that one leads to the other, how circumcision really gives us and teaches us what we need to know about baptism. That'll be in the next episode. Although another point I want to make, uh, just kind of jump in here due to some frequent misconceptions, is that the Old Covenant was actually a covenant of grace and not just works. So I want to address this quickly. It may seem like a tangent, but it really is related, right? Um, The implications of this truth are useful in understanding the relationship of the Old and New Covenants. Um, Mark Jones, wonderful author, uh, he wrote a book called Knowing Christ, and he he explains it this way. It's kind of a longer quote, so bear with me. And again, to, to, to go back. The, the question I'm addressing here, is the old covenant uh, a covenant of grace or a covenant of works? And I think there's a common misconception here because if we want to see continuity between the old and the new, we need to understand how the old covenant, w- there was grace. It was a covenant of grace in the old and not just a covenant of works. We often hear that, oh, the covenant of works before and covenant of grace now. I'm arguing, and Mark is arguing, you'll hear this here in this quote, that the covenant of grace has really been prevalent from the beginning. So this is what he says. Again, this is from his book, Knowing Christ. Was the old covenant 
administered in the time of Moses to God's people a gracious covenant or not? Was it essentially conditional in contrast to an essentially unconditional new covenant? To answer this, we must understand the old covenant in its larger context, particularly chapters 17 through 24 of Exodus. Chapter 19 shows that the Israelites were the recipients of God's salvation, not just physically from Egypt, but spiritually too, verses 4 through 6. The obedience of the Israelites, verses 7 through 8, was not commanded in order that they might be redeemed, but their, their obedience was commanded because they had been redeemed. Exodus 18.10. Uh, he goes on to say that persevering in the covenant was, was contingent upon faith and obedience, but that doesn't mean that grace was completely absent. Obedience is the visible ratification of the genuineness of faith. Grace and faith then are organically related as root and fruit in a way that shows marked continuity between the old and new covenants. The difference between the Old and New Covenants is not that the Old Covenant had conditions for the people and that the New Covenant does not. Under the Old Covenant, the people had put their faith in God and show their faith by obedience while remembering that God alone, not their obedience, saved them. Furthermore, the difference is not that the New Covenant has grace and the Old Covenant did not. Redemption always comes before God's call to obey Him. And then he cites Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, 9 and 6, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and James 2, 14 through 26. So again, the point here, you may want to go back and listen to that. I can understand it's kind of a heavy read, if you will. Uh, you may want to go back and listen to it again. But his point here, what, what uh, Mark is really trying to point out is that God redeemed the people of Israel and then he asked them to obey. So there was immediately from the beginning of the relationship and the establishing of the people there was grace. God was condescending to people, and there was grace and redemption. And out of that grace and redemption, he asked for obedience. And that is where the people of Israel failed, and we fail, and ultimately we need a Savior. But it's that continuity of the model, that what was true, that model of what I just described was true for Israel, and it is true for us today in the church. We completely and fully rely on Jesus to be our obedience and to fulfill the requirements of the covenant. So in conclusion... Uh, although it was a basis uh, for much theology within the Re uh, Reformation, covenantal hermeneutics, um, I want to, in, in conclusion, add that they were really was birthed out of the church fathers. This idea of reading the, the Bible covenantally, it's, it's an ancient theological system. Like it's been around for, from the beginning. Uh, and it's also the basis for how we build a scriptural argument for infant baptism. We need the Old Testament and the Old Covenant to properly understand the new. Um, a tree, for an example, no matter how mature, always contains the substance of the seed from whence it originally came, right? Think about that. It's always got the seed in it somewhere. And although it may grow bigger and better and become more beautiful and bear much more fruit, its origin is always somewhere present within it. And I would argue the same is true for covenantal theology. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Jack with the Chorus and the Chaos. Until next time.